It's good to be with you all this morning. My name is Nick, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Grace Church. Uh, this morning, we start a new sermon series in the book of First Thessalonians. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there with me. As is the custom when we start a new sermon series, I will spend some time in introductory material, which means we're not going to get out of verse 1 today, but I think there's enough in verse 1 to leave us full from God's Word. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Holy Word out of respect for it, then I'll pray, and I'll invite you to be seated. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Amen. This is God's holy and inspired word. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but God's word remains forever. Let me pray and I'll invite you to be seated. Lord, we ask that you fill us with joy and peace in believing even for these next 30 minutes, that we might abound in hope in the Holy Spirit. We come longing to hear from you, so speak. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. So as I said, what I'd like to do is introduce the book of 1 Thessalonians. I'm gonna go through, as I normally do, an epistle by asking who's the author where was the author when they decided to write? Who is the recipient? What is the overall purpose of the book and why does it matter? And then from there, we'll get into verse one. So let's start with who is the author. In short, the letter tells us and the author is Paul. There are several eyes throughout the letter. So many theologians, and pastors, and I happen to be one of them, believe that Paul is the sole author. Timothy and Silvanus were with him, and Acts 17 tells us that they were with him in planting the church, uh, but Paul is the one who wrote. Paul is the one who is inspired by the Holy Spirit to put these words in, uh, on paper for us. Now, he could have had a secretary, he could have had someone, might have been Silvanus or Timothy, actually did the writing, but it was Paul who is responsible under the inspiration of the Spirit to write this letter. Now, we also need to know that 1 Thessalonians is either the first or second book that was inspired by God uh, that Paul wrote. Galatians was likely first in AD 48 or 49, and then Thessalonians came in AD 50. So probably the second letter, and it's almost entirely uh, agreed upon that... Um, this letter is a letter from a loving, dear friend of the church in Thessalonica. One commentator wrote this about Thessalonians. He said, the Thessalonian epistles are simple letters of a great missionary to a young church struggling to keep its feet in difficult and trying times. There is no note of doctrinal finesse like Romans or the logical dexterity of Galatians, or the mystic sublimities of Ephesians. But there is plain, almost disappointingly straightforward, normal letter writing with little 
compassion. This is a pastoral letter written to a people that Paul loved dearly early in his second missionary journey. He wanted this church to grow in their faith and hope in Jesus. Where was he when he wrote it? Well, Acts 17 and the subsequent chapters tell us. So if you want to go read this for yourself and be a good Berean, please do. Paul and Silas with Timothy planted the church in Thessalonica. And Acts 17 tells us that they were there for at least three weeks. So Paul preached in the synagogue for at least three weeks. It was likely longer than that, but not much longer than that. Then they get kicked out. And they get kicked out because of trumped-up charges that they are... uh, saying that Caesar is not king and that there's this other king and uh, there's a threat to the Roman government. Trumped up charges. So they get thrown in jail and a guy named Jason bails them out and then they get run out of town and they go to, the, to a town called Berea. The same crowd from Thessalonica comes and kicks them out of Berea. Then Paul leaves first, goes to Athens on his own, eventually Silvanus and Timothy join him there, and it's in Athens that Paul says, I want to know how the Thessalonian church is doing. So Timothy, you go back to the church and tell them of my love for, you, for them, and then you come and bring a report back to me. And it's while Timothy is in Thessalonica that Paul goes to Corinth and plants the church in Corinth, and then Timothy comes and meets him in Corinth. So the letter was written from Corinth after Timothy comes back and tells Paul how the Thessalonian church is doing. So in total, Paul and Silas and Timothy plant the church, get kicked out. Timothy goes back to the church and then meets Paul in Corinth in less than a year, more than likely. This is all happening quickly. Now, who is the recipient of this letter? I mean, it's pretty obvious that it's a church in Thessalonica, but I think it's important for us to know a few things about the city of Thessalonica and what these Christians would have been living like in that time. So Thessalonica was founded by a relative of Alexander the Great in around the year 300 BC. It was the largest city in the entire region. At least 100,000 residents, maybe as many as 200,000 residents. It was located on the Aegean Sea, so it was a port city, but it was also located on, I think you say it, the Via Ignatia, which is that famous Roman road that connected a great part of the Roman Empire. So not only was it on a port, and it could receive and send ships, but it was on the main road. And so this city was centrally uh, located and extremely important for the commerce in the entire region. So it was important economically, it was important politically, and it was important religiously too. It became about 150 years after its founding, the provincial city of Rome in the whole area. In other words, Rome sent a governor to rule this city and to do business, if you will, and have a positive relationship with all of the people in this region. It was the place to be. It's the New York City. It's the LA. This is a big city, an important city. It's also important religiously. According to one commentator, there were up to 25 gods, heroes, and virtues that would be worshipped in this city. 
up to 25. Those would include Caesar, Zeus, Athena, Apollo, and even some of the Egyptian gods. And what's interesting historically is that the people of the city would be expected to participate in all of the religious festivals and customs that were a part of all of that pluralistic religious society. They would be expected to go to the parade or whatever they did back then. They would be expected to worship. They would be expected to do all of the things that these false gods and the religion uh, entailed. And what that means is that when people converted to Christianity and they realized that there's only one God and you shall not have any other gods before me and you shall not bow down to them or serve the ones that you carve, you shall not take God's name in vain, we just studied this, that they would risk losing everything. Family, homes, jobs. And you need to know that most people didn't own homes back then. All the rich people owned homes and, and rented them to the common folk. You could lose your home, lose your job and friends. Everything was at risk. Now, I know this is just the introduction, but I want to apply. I've heard many of your Christian testimonies. Most of us haven't lost a thing after joining Christianity. Some of us have, but most of us have not lost much. I'd also like us to, to remember that we don't live in a, in a place that's all that different than Thessalonica. The predominant religion is wrapped up socially and culturally and religiously and economically. Many folks historically, this is changing maybe a little bit, but many folks who leave the LDS church could be shunned by their family or at risk of losing their jobs. Their entire culture comes crashing down. Not always, but sometimes. So here's my, here's my question of application. Are you prepared to help people pick up their entire life if they convert to Christianity and lose everything? Are we as a church prepared to do this? I encourage you to think about that question because it is real. The hooks are deep in the LDS church. It is hard to leave for many, many reasons. And I guarantee you, you live around many in your neighborhood who are questioning the truth of what they believe. The Thessalonian church was in grave danger upon their conversion. Now, the church was made up just briefly of a few former Jews. It was predominantly Gentiles, but some former Jews. And there were wealthy and influential women that were called out in Acts chapter 17 as well. So it's a, it's a, it's a culturally diverse church to start with. That leads us to the purpose of the book. Here's my one line, trying to boil it down as uh, clearly as I can. Here's what I think the book tells us. Based on what God has already done to the Thessalonians in the past, Paul wants to encourage them now for what is to come. Based on what God has done in the past, Paul wants to encourage them now for what is to come. Here's a, a more wordy way to say it from a guy named G.K. Beale in his commentary. He says, Paul thanks God for the Thessalonians' salvation 
He gives them further instruction to complete their faith and prays for this in order that they might please God by being holy and thus pass through the end time judgment. Based on what God has done in the past, Paul wants to encourage them now, looking forward to the future. And as I said before, I believe I said it already, this letter is pastoral. It is tender. It is written by a man who loves the recipient. Outside of probably Philippians, this may be the most encouraging, loving letter that Paul wrote to any of the churches that he founded. He wants to see them thrive in the Lord and remain hopeful in their new faith. That leads us to why does all of this matter? In other words, why study the book of 1 Thessalonians? And besides the obvious that it is part of God's word and we should study all of God's word, every chapter, every verse, why study 1 Thessalonians in the New Testament rather than Romans or Galatians or Hebrews or somewhere else? Well, one of the reasons that I chose this is because of these reasons. Paul writes about how the church imitated Paul and Silas and Timothy. That's discipleship language. I love discipleship. He writes about loving one another with brotherly love more and more. That's the second table of the law. He writes about he, how Paul didn't have to evangelize a region because the, the, the region had already heard about their faith. In other words, through them, evangelism is taking place. He writes about the second coming of Jesus and how we're to live in light of the second coming. He writes about the value of work and about the value of witnessing pe to people as you work alongside them. He writes about being established in blamelessness and holiness and fighting sin, sanctification. And he says, rejoice in hardship, pray without ceasing, give, it, give thanks in all circumstances. Packed in a number, just a small few chapters, this book hits on a lot of what it means to live the Christian life. So why study the book of 1 Thessalonians? Because every part of it is useful for our sojourn, awaiting the coming of Christ together as a church. Based on what God has already done in us in the past, Paul is writing to us so that we can live in hopeful expectation of what is to come. All right, that's all introduction. Half my time is gone. These, we'll spend just a few minutes in verse one now of 1 Thessalonians 1. Let me read the first verse again. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Paul, in all of his letters, says who he is, tells who he's writing to, and then has this, some version of this blessing, grace to you and peace. So there are our three headings, much shorter than usual. Here they are, God's men, God's church, God's blessing. That's where we're going. We'll start with God's men. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. And I'll take for granted this morning that you at least have some familiarity who Paul is, but we probably don't really know about this Silvanus character as much. Silvanus is the Greek or Roman way to say this name, and uh, Silas is the Hebrew or likely the Aramaic way. So it's the same guy. When we read Silvanus or Sil I keep saying Silvanus, I don't know how to say it, 
or Silas, same guy. So in Acts chapter 17, Luke calls him Silas. Here, Paul calls him Silvanus, same guy. And we were introduced to Silas in Acts chapter 15. And Acts 15 is the great Jerusalem council where the elders, the, the apostles, the leaders of the church came together to discuss the issue of circumcision. What do we do with all these Gentiles who are coming to faith? Must we place the sign of circumcision on them? And of course, the answer was no. You do not have to place the sign of circumcision on them. And once the council made up their minds, we read in Acts chapter 15, verse 22, that they sent a letter to Antioch to report on their decision. And Paul and Barnabas went, but they elected two other men to go with them. And those two men were Barsabbas and Silas, two leading men among the brothers. So Silas was a leading man among all of the churches who were gathered to come to Jerusalem to figure out this circumcision issue. And he becomes... Paul's traveling partner throughout his entire second missionary journey, which is when Thessalonica was planted. So Silas is a right-hand man to Paul. One commentator calls him his senior associate. The same commentator calls Timothy his junior associate, Paul's junior associate. They both were accompanied or they both started to accompany Paul in his second missionary journey, but Timothy along the way becomes extremely close to Paul. So close that Paul writes these kinds of things about Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, in 1 Corinthians 4. His true child in the faith, 1 Timothy 1. And in the letter to the Philippians, Paul tells the church that he has no one like Timothy. I didn't count how many people Paul names in his letters, but it is a lot, a lot of people. And he writes, that I have no one like Timothy. These men were shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, step for step with the Apostle Paul, doing lots and lots of ministry with him. And I want to focus on that for a, key mi for a minute by way of application. Paul is the Apostle, the greatest missionary outside of the Lord Jesus who ever lived, he might be the greatest church planter who ever lived. He has 13 letters that bear his name, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that we study in our Word of God. And here he is, highlighting two men that he couldn't do ministry without. Paul recognizes that even though he is the apostle, he needed help. So even those like Paul, who have been used by God for tremendous purposes throughout history, have needed lots and lots of help to do what God has called them to do. Paul does not have all the gifts. Paul does not have all the abilities. Paul does not have all the capabilities to do what God has called him to do. So Timothy and Silas and all of those other people, Paul writes and says, these folks gave their lives away for the sake of the kingdom. These two men in particular went all over the place with Paul, went to prison, got kicked out of cities, all for the sake of the gospel. I'm thankful that Austin started uh, our announcements by thanking some people who were, who were willing to use their gifts and their time and their labor for the sake of the church. 
let me ask you, are you using your gifts for the sake of Grace Church? If I was going to write a letter, would I include your name in the key ministries of Grace Church? I can't name everybody, and I wouldn't try, and I probably wouldn't use anybody's name, but I hope you get my point. You have all been given a gift or gifts by the Holy Spirit, and they're not for you. They're for us. Gifts like faith, gifts like prayer, gifts like giving, gifts like serving, gifts like teaching, helping, administration, on and on they go. Are you using your gifts to serve Grace Church? Because they weren't given to you for you. They're given to serve and build up the kingdom of God. So I encourage you, think about this. Are there ways that you are holding back from the church? Are there ways that you could give more to the church for the advancement of the kingdom of God? Now, let me, let me end it on a positive. Many, many of us are serving the church. There are lots of ways to serve the church. Many ways are being filled. But we have been given gifts, and if we don't use those gifts for the sake of the kingdom, we're probably living in unfaithfulness. If you call Grace Church home, and you are not serving the church, you are living in unfaithfulness. And this looks different ways, different ages, different times, different seasons of life. And if you need help figuring these things out, come to the elders. We will help you figure out ways that you can serve and advance the kingdom here at Grace Church. Let's move on to our second heading, God's Church. We've seen God's men. Let's look at God's church. Paul is writing to God's church. Now, the word for church is a common one. We might, most of us might even know it. It's the word for ekklesia in the Greek, and it means the the called out ones, those who have been called out of the world and have been called to God. Peter says, we're called out of the darkness and into the marvelous light. That's who these people are. They've been called by God to himself. This group of people has become the new Israel. See, the word church in the New Testament, ecclesia, the called out ones, is always used with the Old Testament called out ones in mind. What I'm trying to say is that God is not coming up with some new concept of the church. This is a continuation of what God has started to do with the Old Testament people whom he's called out of the darkness. The difference is that these folks, the Thessalonian church and all of those who are on this side of the cross, are called out after the accomplished work of Christ. Those who were called out in the Old Testament are expecting the work of Christ, but we're all saved the same way. We're all saved by the work of Christ. We stand on this side of the cross and look back And then we're here in the present and we're looking forward. The people in the Old Testament were always looking forward to something. Well, that event has come in the person and work of Christ. Now, the word church also describes a particular kind of people. It does not describe a place where those people go. I mean, it does include that because where are we right now? Well, we're we're in church. 
but more importantly, we make up the church. If we all stood up right now and gathered over there, we would still be the church in a worship service. We don't have to do it here in this church. Ecclesia is more about the people who gather in, spirit, in worship in spirit and in truth. So to a group of people who some of them are former Jews and many of them are Gentiles, God is saying, you have all been called out in the same way. And your differences are now much less important than what you have in common. And there would be great differences between the Jews and the Gentiles. What is it that they have in common? Well, look at what Paul says. To the church of the Thessalonians, here's what they have in common. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They're different in many ways. But what they have in common is that all of them are in God the Father. They are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is getting at their new identity that they have received when they came to faith in Jesus. They are no longer Jews or Gentiles. They are no longer slave or free. They are no longer male or female. Physically, they're still all of those things. But spiritually, they are something so much greater. They are in Christ. They are a new creation. They're no longer this or that. They are together the church, saved by the grace of God, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, converted justified through the righteousness of Christ and on and on the golden chain of salvation goes. All of them received this thing in common. And it is the most important thing that anybody can share. They have salvation in Christ, which means that they have been welcomed into fellowship with the triune God, the eternal God of heaven and earth, and they're now in fellowship with one another which means that everything they do in life, every decision, every moment, they now do in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything, every moment is now lived in light of what God has done for them. Now, Paul uses in Christ almost 200 times in his epistles, but it's very, very rare for him to say in God. And the fact that he does it here in his second letter tells us something about Paul's early Christology. He is saying that Jesus is God. He is putting him in the same category as Yahweh. We read it elsewhere like Philippians 2 or Colossians 1 and 2 where Paul tells us more about the divinity of Christ. But it's also here in 1 Thessalonians 1.1. Paul is telling us that Jesus is Lord. He is one with the Father, and we are now one with the Father and the Son in the Spirit because of our being called out of the darkness and into the marvelous light. So here's, here's my question of application here. I see you all, that you are in church. That's clear. Thanks for coming. The question is, are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Just because you come to church does not mean that you are in Christ. Little ones, children who have not yet made a profession of faith, I'm especially thinking of you. Are you in Christ, young ones? 
We long to see you all, covenant kids, come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask your mom, ask your dad what it means to be in Christ, what it means to, to have faith and believe. We long to see you come. But there are some in our midst who have not made a profession of faith and who are not kids. Are you in Christ? Come, repent of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Many of us are in Christ. Are we living like it? What do I mean by are we living like it? Specifically, I mean, are we living a life of regular faith and repentance? I love that Austin started the confession of sin saying, we should do this every day. And then he's like, mm, you, didn't, you might not have caught it, but he's like, mm, no, more than that, every hour, maybe every moment. A life of faith and repentance. Yes, this is the gate to salvation. Faith and repentance is an elementary doctrine that we all come we all must come to if we are going to be saved. We have been called out of the darkness and into the marvelous light through faith and repentance, but we also must make a habit, a daily moment-by-moment -moment habit of faith that leads to repentance unto life. Can I tell you the most encouraging thing that I think you could tell any preacher? It's not about how creative his illustrations are. It's not about how good his alliteration is, although you know I love alliteration. It's not that you can hit your time frame every time from the pulpit and I got five minutes left. You know what it is? It's thank you for preaching the gospel. Thank you for preaching the good news. Thank you for telling me that I must repent and believe every single day. Thank you for making the main thing the main thing. I don't bring that up to discourage you if you're not thanking your preacher for that. I bring that up because I want you to hunger for the simple message of the gospel that you can never grow out of. I want you to thirst I want you to long for the continued growth in grace and understanding for what God has done for you in Christ. I want you to come to church knowing that you're going to be called to repent of your sin and be convicted of it because you never outgrow it. To live a God-honoring, Christ-exalting life. Repentance is not stopping what you're doing. That's a part of it. Repentance is returning to the covenant God who sent his son to die for you and poured out his mercy and grace upon you. What else do I have to say but that? The most encouraging thing you can say to a preacher is thanks for preaching the gospel. The gospel of grace and peace. That's our third major heading. This is also the conclusion. Paul blesses the church, bestows a blessing upon them. Grace to you and peace. It's a blessing, but it's also a reminder. It's a reminder that that's, all, that's what they've already received. And it's a reminder of what they can expect. And this is, this is a specific kind of peace that Paul refers to here. I've said this before, 
but it's always worth saying when we see this word for peace, it's not a lack of conflict. It's not a lack of trouble. Biblical peace is total well-being in your whole person. Total well-being. It is the kind of well-being, it is the kind of peace that Adam and Eve enjoyed as they walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day. And every other time, but especially that. It's the kind of peace that was lost when that same Adam and Eve decided to rebel against God. And it's the same kind of peace that no unbelieving person can ever experience in their entire life. Not in this life or in the life to come. This kind of peace is a gift from start to finish from God. It is the kind of peace that always flows from grace. Grace to you and peace. These, these go together, grace and peace. And this church, and our church, those who are made up of the called out ones of God are recipients of both, always. Stop and think about that for a minute. Despite you, despite all that you've done to rebel against God, if you are in Christ, you have received grace and peace and it will never be taken from you. Once you are in, you're never out. How could you? Christ is the one who's done all the work. All you did is receive the benefits. Ligon Duncan in his commentary calls this a life-defining verse. A life-defining verse. Everyone, without exception, who is in God and in Christ has received what you don't deserve. You deserve the wrath of God. You get grace instead. You get mercy instead. You get kindness instead. And everyone who is in Christ gets total well-being now and forevermore. Christ is the greatest gift that's ever been given. And, and those who are in him, we, we are in him because God has given us grace not what we deserve. So no matter what tomorrow brings, no matter what hardship you may face, no matter how difficult it is to fight the remaining sin that's in you, despite how difficult it might be to refrain from stoking into flame your favorite sin tomorrow morning, if you're in Christ, you have grace and you have peace. It is yours. So take hold of it. That, my friends, 1 Thessalonians 1.1 is great news. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us life-defining verses verses in your word that remind us of the blessings that we are given by you because we're your people. Thank you for union with you, fellowship with you, and fellowship with one another. Thank you for the blessing of grace and peace in Christ alone. So may we as a collection of your people receive these gifts afresh and may we live in light of them with joy in your sight, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.